Absolutely priceless. Thank you, worship team and Daniel. Okay, we are contemplating a radical break with tradition at Northwake. You guys up for that? Like to break tradition? Okay. Fasten your seatbelts. We are going to sign up for study serve early. I'm not kidding. We're not going to bring the small children up, pinch them, make them cry. No. We're signing up early. So that means this, this day and next week, you should examine the board on your way out. It's, right, it's the big one in the middle of the lobby. And sign up how you would like to serve the church or study next uh, semester. If you're not familiar with this, our church during the first hour um, meets and half our folks serve in a variety of ministries, a lot with children, and, uh, and the other half serves in a couple of weeks. A few weeks we're going to flip-flop that, and those who have been serving will study, and the studiers will serve. So today on your way out, um, or by next Sunday, I'd like to encourage you to uh, make that Commitment for the next go-round. That would be a tremendous help for us. This summer, um, my middle son, Andrew, went to Texas uh, with the intent, allegedly, to visit family. And uh, we had another scheme in mind. He flew his girlfriend down of nine years that he's been dating for nine years, and he took her to that restaurant and that little ball right there atop the city of Dallas called Reunion Tower, and while he was there, he uh, dropped to one knee, and he proposed, okay? And shockingly, after nine years, you can tell by her face, she said yes, Caitlin said yes. And, of course, this made Andrew a very happy, very happy man. Okay? Now, the stories don't always end like that. Okay? Uh, for instance, watch this trailer uh, from The Zookeeper. Will you, marry will you marry me? No. Really? I know it shouldn't bother me that you're a zookeeper, but it kind of does. <laughs> See, love can be embraced or it can be rejected, can it? In fact, in some sense, the love of God for us can be embraced or it can be rejected. It would, it would seem to be one of those great no-brainers, wouldn't it? Um, you know, do, you want, do you want God's love or not? Yeah, of course I do. And yet that's not always our practice. That's not always our choice. And so uh, what we'd like to do today is think about what does it mean to say yes to the love of God? How do we do that? And what are we welcoming when we say that? Our little subtitle, um, you can see it on the screen there, for our series in Deuteronomy has been a loving obedience to a loving God. We, we get the obedience part pretty clearly in Deuteronomy. Sometimes it's hard for us to see how it is that God's loving his people. But in Deuteronomy 31, that is our passage for today, there are three significant ways that come to the surface that God loves his people, that he loves us, and shows us how we can welcome that in our lives. So if you'll open the Deuteronomy 31, I'd like to pray for us, and we'll... We'll look at this together. 
God, it would seem to be without dispute the best thing in the world would be to be loved by you. And yeah, we're, we settle for less. We intentionally choose less. We reject your love at times. I pray today that your spirit through your word would show us our foolishness. Call us back home to you in significant, personal ways for each of us. So, Lord, we submit to you now and invite you. Bring us home to your love now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Deuteronomy 31, we'll start in verse 1. Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. Happy birthday, Moses. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go with you before you. He will destroy those nations before you so that you shall dispossess them and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So God's people just about to enter the promised land. But Moses is not permitted to go in. This is not just a function of his age. He's 120. But it is also a function of God's judgment against him for a sin that he committed that he would not be able to lead the people into the land. So there's a leadership transition that's happening in Deuteronomy 31 and the chapters that follow. Moses is not going in, but Joshua is in his place. I want you to understand, though, it's really not about Joshua. Okay? It's about God. That God in love has chosen this people, and now God is going to go with them into the land. That's why he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. I am with you. God has chosen, of all the peoples of the earth, this people, Israel, to be his people. And he will be their God. Genesis 17, he said to Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The Psalms pick it up in Psalm 135 and says, The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. And you bring it into our day, into the New Testament. And Peter applies this language to us. He says, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that, that's the first thing that I want to make sure you don't miss about God's strong love for his people in Deuteronomy 31. It's a love that chooses. But it's also a love that chooses the undeserving. Look Look down at verse 16 with me. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people, they will rise 
and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Skip down to verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Verse 21 finishes saying, For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore them. So, in the most vivid language possible, God says, I know what's going to happen when these people go into the land. They are going to whore after other gods, God says. They will forsake me, break my covenant, turn to other gods, serve them, despise me as they break my covenant. Now, the amazing thing about this is this is not something that is in the past. God is saying, I know this is going to happen. They are going to do this to me, and yet I choose to love them and be with them. Deuteronomy has been hammering this um, home throughout uh, the book. And back in chapter 9, maybe you remember this, it says uh, to Israel, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And then he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to his fathers, to your fathers rather, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So it wasn't because they were so wonderful that God chose them. In fact, he says, I chose you just because you were a teeny bit better than the Canaanite pagans who were in the land. I chose you to spank them, to discipline them, to drive them out. Okay. It's not a very complimentary uh, statement about them. God lovingly chose them, though they did not deserve it. In fact, what they deserved was the opposite. They deserved not to be chosen. But God chose them in love, knowing everything about them. And our choosing is similar. God loved us, knowing full well ahead of time our rebellion, our waywardness, our selfishness, our pride. Need I go on? He knew it all. And he chose us in love. It's just like what Moses said. I know what they're inclined to do even today before they go in. God knew our propensity to sin and deny him fully even before we did it, and he chose us still. Let me give you an example, kind of think about this backwards. Um, my wife, Steph, and I were doing premarital counseling with a couple the other day over at Starbucks, and we were talking about submission. Okay. Talking about what it means for a wife to lovingly submit to her husband, and so... I turn to Steph and I say, so what's been the hardest thing about submitting to me 
low these 30 years. And so she starts to share some things, and I'm looking at my watch thinking, you know, don't take the entire time here. You know, just one or two short things would be okay. She's dumping the whole truck, and so finally she's done, and I say, um, so what's been the best thing about submitting to me all these years? And she said, it's that I get to do it with you. See, now that's, that's an amazing love. Knowing fully, loving still. Okay. And God knew it before the betrayal, before the denial, before our unfaithfulness. He knew and he still chose. God, God's love is demonstrated in choosing the undeserving. Have you embraced God's loving choice of you? Some of you have been around for a while. Christmas, Easter, Labor Day, you pop in. You hear the gospel of the love of God for you. And you're not ready yet. You're not willing yet. You've got a few things you want to clean up first. And that's not how it works. You don't clean up and deal with your own sin and then come to be loved by God. You let God love you just as you are. And he, by his spirit, will give you the power to clean up the things that need to be cleaned up. Have you said yes to the choosing love of God for you? Have you said, yes, I need a Savior. Yes, I trust that it's Jesus. And yes, I want to follow and worship him. Have you said that? Have you said yes to the love of God for you? Now again, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Who would say no to being loved by God, a God who loves you even as you are? This could be your day. This could be the day that you say yes to the love of God for you. And so at the close of our time today, I'm going to give you that chance. I'm going to give you a chance to say yes, a true, authentic, course-changing yes, that you will welcome the love of God that he has for you, that he's shown in his son, in his death and resurrection for you. God shows us his love because he chooses the undeserving, and he protects the endangered. Um, God's not going to permit Moses to enter, right? Instead, he raises up Joshua to lead and care for the people in his place. Uh, Down in verse 7, Moses summoned Joshua, said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It's the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This commission is repeated multiple times in this chapter. God takes Moses and Joshua aside in in the tent and says, Joshua, don't be afraid. And, of course, that's because he has to lead this motley crew of people that he's just described are going to be so unfaithful. Joshua, you get to lead them. And so he says, I'm with you. And he encourages him. And the provision of this leader, Joshua... And leaders throughout Scripture 
is God's loving protection of his people from evil that would ensnare them. This is what leaders in the church do. This is what shepherds do. They protect the people. We follow Jesus' example. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Shepherds protect sheep. It's what they do in the church. At North Wake, we are greatly privileged to have lots of shepherds in training. Um, That God is raising up. Some of you are are here because you're at seminary to be trained to be a pastor, to be a shepherd. And some of you have chosen that because you're enamored with what I'm doing right now. You want to be up in front and you want to teach. You want to speak. That's a very small piece of what it means to shepherd God's people. If that's really what you love, you might ought to be a motivational speaker somewhere because your job as a pastor is much, much richer, much, much more challenging, much more demanding than that. You are to lay your life down for the sheep, and this is part of that. The sacrifice of preparation to do this is just a small part of that. Shepherds protect sheep. Joshua, as Moses before him, is a demonstration of God's protecting love for his people. God displays this in another way down in verse 9. Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So, This is another example of the protecting love of God. Every seven years, the people had a special gathering. This law was read to them to protect them. Their leaders would read it to them, and it would act as a protection to them. Protection from the idolatrous temptations that they were living amongst, the people in the land and near the land. It was to protect them. Um, I trust that that has happened to you here, and that's why you come back. That here you have come and you've heard the word read and taught, and it has protected you. It's made a course change in your life, or it's kept you from making a course change that would have been horrible for you. It's been God's protection for you, the reading of the word. Now, but word has come back to me on occasion of people who um, complain about my sermons because I read the Bible too much. Okay. Reads the Bible way too much in his sermons. Um, that's what a sermon is. 
Okay? That's, what, that's what we're supposed to do. We read the Bible and we put it up there where you can see it and we say, look at that. That's amazing. Let me explain a little piece to you and then you should do this stuff. That's a sermon. Okay? It's the reading of the word and explaining as needed and then urging you to believe it and live it. So I would be more worried about a guy who didn't read the Bible a lot. You should worry about pastors who don't read the Bible a lot. Anyway, um, (laughs) you came here. You've experienced that, I trust. And the Word has protected you when it's read and taught aloud from doing something stupid that you really would regret. Restoring you. Refreshing you. The reading of the word for us and for our children is a gift of the protective love of God for us. And so this gathering with leaders leading and shepherding you by the reading of the word is an essential part of God's loving protection for you. You should be hesitant to miss out on this protection. It's a gift of love from your Father for you. God's protecting love really, though, in this passage is seen supremely by his presence with his people, the promised presence of God with his people. Go back to those first six verses again. Um, It says in verse 3, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy those nations before you. The Lord will do to them as he did to those other kings. The Lord will give them over to you. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear or be in dread of them. It's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. See, again, it's not really about Joshua, gift though he is. It's about God being with them. That's what makes them not fear or dismay. God is with them. I'm going to tell you a story by John Ortberg. I told it last year in the First Corinthians series, but it's a great story. I want to tell it again. So for those of you who are new and forgetful, enjoy this story, and the rest of you can just be reminded of it again. Ortberg says, many years ago, I was walking at Newport Beach, a beach in Southern California, with two friends. Two of us were on staff together at a church, and one was an elder at the same church, and we walked past a bar where a fight had been going on inside, and the fight had spilled out into the street, he says, just like an old western. Several guys were beating up on another guy, and he was bleeding from the forehead. We knew we had to do something, so we went over to break up the fight. He says, I don't think we were very intimidating. He said, all we did was walk over and say, hey, you guys, cut that out. Um, Didn't do much good. Then all of a sudden, they looked at us with fear in their eyes, he says. The guys who had been beating up on the one guy stopped, started to slink away. I didn't know why until we turned and looked behind us. Out of the bar had come the biggest man I think I've ever seen. He was something like six feet, seven inches, maybe 300 pounds, maybe 2% body fat, just huge. He says, we called him Bubba. He says, not to his face, but when we talked about him, we called him Bubba. He said, Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. He said, you could tell he was hoping they would try and have a go at him. And all of a sudden, he says, my attitude was transformed. 
And I said to those guys, you better not let us catch you coming around here again. I was a different person because I had a great big bubba, he says. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help somebody that needed helping. I was ready to serve where serving was required. Why? Because I had a great big bubba. I was convinced that I was not alone. I was safe. He says, if I were convinced that Bubba were with me 24 hours a day, I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life. If I knew Bubba was behind me all day long, you wouldn't want to mess with me. But he's not. He says, I can't count on Bubba. Again and again, he says, the writers of Scripture pose this question for us, how big is your God? Again and again, we are reminded that one who is greater than Bubba has come, and you don't have to wonder whether or not he'll show up. He's always there. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live your life in hiding. You have a great big God, and he has called you to do something. So get on with it, he says. God's presence, our great big God's presence with his people as they walk in his ways, as, as they walk into the land of promise according to God's provision for them. His presence with us as we walk in his ways. This is his protecting love for us. He is with us. Be strong and courageous. Love protects it's what loves to do. It's what we do with our children. It's why dads try to sneak out on first dates with their daughters. Okay. Love protects. Um, the other day, Steph and I are out riding bikes out in the country, as we try to do often. And <clears throat> we are, when we ride bikes, we wear the biking gear, right? The little obscene pants things. I wear those, okay? That's why we ride way out in the country, so I won't get arrested for some kind of indecency or defrocked by the elders. I'm out there by myself, and Steph and I are riding along, and uh, on the rare occasion this day, I happen to be in front of her, and I'm riding along, and I see a sign up ahead on the road um, that makes me call out to her, and I say, hey, why don't you go on ahead? And so she passes me, and we're riding along. Now she's in front, and I'm behind her, and as we get to a certain point, I, I pull up right next to her so that our bikes are tandem so that I can shield her from what I saw the sign indicating was up ahead. The sign simply said, inmates working. Okay? And so there are, on the left side of the road, about 12 to 15 um, inmates along the side of the road. And so my desire was to shield her from whatever jeers, comments, whatever might come her way by riding along. That's what love does. Love protects with the presence of the lover. It's what love does. It's what God does for us when he is with us. He is our great big God who's protecting us. Now, what what if Steph had said when I told her, say that she had seen the sign too, and I told her, hey, let me, you know, why don't you go on ahead? Supposing she'd said, no, I'm good. And then when we got up to where the inmates were, she had pulled over to that side of the road, stopped the bike, and started to fraternize with the inmates. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
apart from being wholly alien to my wife's character and makeup, um, what would that say about her embracing of the protection of my love for her when she says, no, I'm good? What is it saying to God when we violate the protection of his love, his provision for us, and we say, no, I'm good. I'm going to ride on the side of the road I want to ride on. God in love is desiring to protect you. One of the ways he does it is by the leaders of the church bringing you the word in this gathering. How important is this to you? What does it mean when you say, no, I'm good? I'll take care of this myself. And this becomes less than a priority for you. He chooses in love the undeserving. He protects in love the endangered. And and lastly, he rescues in love the wayward. But he does it not in the way that you might expect in Deuteronomy 31. It's a bit of a puzzle. We need to look at it fairly closely. Down in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So there's a a meeting of these three, God and Joshua and Moses, in this tent to commission Joshua. Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So God in response to his people's unfaithfulness, their ongoing unfaithfulness, he forsakes them and he hides his face from them such that they suffer many evils and troubles. Okay. Now, if you are in the room and awake, you should have a problem with this. Okay. Because back in verse 6, what's God say? Be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid, don't dismay. Why? Because I will not forsake you. What's he say here? In that day, when they've been unfaithful, I will forsake them. Somehow we've got to make sense out of this contradiction that happens in about 10 verses within each other. Apparent um, contradiction that we have here. To make sense out of this, I would say it's it's helpful to think that, that... This promise God makes to not forsake, it is modified in the context, in the extent to which it applies. I'll come back to that. Secondly, it is modified in the context, this forsaking God does, is modified in the context as to the intent of the forsaking, what its purpose is. So first of all, the extent of the promise God has made God is not 
always with his people in the same way and the same extent. When he says, I will not forsake you, um, it's not an ultimate forsaking that's in view here. Okay? It's not that, or when he says, I will forsake you, rather, um, it's not that he's going to forsake them forever, permanently, totally. You pick up on that by the way God deals with them in the rest of the passage. Okay. It's not a total, absolute forsaking. Um, God will not forsake them based on their obedience to him. It, the, the promise is somewhat limited in scope. When he says, I will not forsake you, it's when they go into the land and do what God asks. God says, I'll be with you. I won't forsake you as you do that. Now, when you get all stupid and you start going after other gods, that's when he says, I will forsake you. But when you walk in God's ways, you have absolute confidence that he's with you. That he's not going to forsake you. He's not going to hang you out to dry when you walk in obedience to him. So the promise is limited in its, in its extent. It's also restorative in its intent. Look at verse 17 with me. God says, my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? The idea seems to be that God is using their suffering as, a, as an aha moment when they come to their senses and they realize that they have bartered the presence and the favor of God for other gods, and they realize that's been a really bad deal. Okay. And that is brought to them by their suffering, by God's forsaking them to the consequences of their choices, one of which is distance from him. His face turns from them. C.S. Lewis is often cited as having wisely said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's exactly what Moses is describing here. When God forsakes his people, it's so that they will seek him again. It's a redemptive, rescuing purpose. So God's promise to not forsake is limited to when we walk in obedience with him. And the intent of his forsaking when that happens is to restore us. It's like church discipline functions in our body. When we have to remove someone from our fellowship because of unrepentant sin, our great hope is that they will turn from that and join us again. The same kind of principles are in play here. Now, is God lovingly pursuing you right now through the hardship that you find yourself in? Not all hardship comes from directly from our sin, but some of it does. Is God trying to get your attention so that you will let him love you again, that you will say yes to him again? God may very well be calling out to you even though he is distant. It's interesting um, the way God rescues. Down in verse 19, he does it through a song. He loves his people and rescues them through a song. 
Verse 19 says, now write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I've brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, they have eaten and are full and grown fat. They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know that they are inclined to do even, I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. And so Moses wrote this song the same day and brought it back to the people of Israel. So the intent of the song is to call the people back. It's got this kind of toe-tapping tune that the kids can't get out of their mind, and they're singing about it, and it's to call to rescue the people through the song. Um, the theme of the song, which we're going to explore next week more fully, chapter 32 is Moses' song. It's not the usual happy, upbeat kind of message that we like to sing. Here's some samples from those lyrics we'll look at next week. In verse 15, but Jeshurun, that's God's people, Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, strange gods with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the rock who gave you, the God who gave you birth. Down in verse 22, God says, And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them and the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword will, shall bereave and indoors terror for young men and women alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. So the idea is when they get wayward and they've learned this song, especially their kids are going to start, they're out playing in the courtyard singing these lyrics. And God's going to shoot us with a bow and arrow and he's going to slay us and we're going to get devoured. You know? And the people are remembering. Okay? It's God's rescue to them. Um, it's not your usual happy praise song. It has a little more of a country western feel to it. Um, kind of like this one. This is called Pray For You. I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things are going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job, and you just pray for them. So I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. Okay. It has that same dark emotional feel to it, but the intent is very different, okay? The intent of Moses' song is to restore the people to rescue them from the snare that's been set for their very souls so that they would know the love of God for them again. Okay? It's a rescue song. Let's close with this one last rescuing tool God puts in place. Verse 24, Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, this is what God asked him to do, 
Take this book of the law, put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So the law is now a witness, just like the song. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you all. Behold, even today when I'm with you, alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So again, Moses is looking at the future. He says, I know you, Henri people, you're going to betray the Lord. I know you are. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give your leaders this word. And that's going to be how you're rescued through the reading of the word, the teaching. Not only is it a protection for you, but when you're wayward, it's how God calls you back home. It's how he rescues you. The love of God through his word in the hands of his leaders is an invitation back into a right relationship with God. The love of God rescues the wayward. And God is, if you're here today and you know this description fits you, God is extending that invitation to you personally. It's why you're here. He is, he is offering his love to you to rescue you and restore you once again. Will you welcome his love or will you reject it? Really? Bow with me in prayer if you would.